Before the episode starts properly, I want to let you know about a really cool thing that is happening to me, which is that I am publishing a book through Unbound. Unbound are a publishing company, which means that they don't publish things that they don't think are good and that they edit and they support their authors. The thing that makes them different from other publishing companies is they're half publishing company and half crowdfunding company which means that the way that the books get published is that people who want to read the books pre-order those books they can pre-order them as a digital copy or as a hardback or they can pledge more money to get different kinds of things along with the book that they're pre-ordering unbound approached me in december to see if i wanted to adapt my show what about the men mansplaining masculinity into a book and i said yes please i definitely would like to do that and so that is what i'm doing if you go to the unbound website and there'll be a link to this in the show notes you can find mansplaining masculinity over there and pre-order a copy of that book the way that this book is going to get made is by people like you pre-ordering it and pledging to it and people like you telling other people about it sharing it on social media recommending it to other people those kinds of things you can find out what the book is fully about by reading about it on the page there's a video of me in a purple dress and fedora with my childhood toy dolphin telling you about what the book is about video is your preferred way to absorb information but basically mansplaining masculinity is about looking into myself and looking out at culture and thinking about how masculinity is constructed and created and how systematic elements contribute both to the ways that men are hurt by society but also the ways that men hurt other people in society it is not a book that says that men are the problem but it is a book that will say that we can be part of the solution. And if you want to get an idea of what it's like before you pledge to it, you can listen to a podcast of the show that it's adapted from on the website mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk. And also there was an episode of BBC Radio 4's Forethought called Liberating Men, which was a reflection on an extension of the show. So listen to those shows, see if you like what you hear, and if you do, then please do support and pledge to make mansplaining masculinity happen. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Getting Better Acquainted Replayed. In this strand of the show, I showcase episodes from the first hundred or so episodes of Getting Better Acquainted, which went out in 2011 and 2012. There's a few reasons why I'm reposting these episodes. One of the reasons is that SoundCloud has removed the early episodes from my RSS feed, so you can't get all the way back to Getting Better Acquainted number one on the feed anymore. For a while, that frustrated me. I was kind of upset about it. Nowadays, I feel a little bit more ambivalent about that. On a personal level, the loss of those episodes from easy access on the internet, I mean, they are still there. They're all streamable and downloadable through SoundCloud, but they're not on the iTunes feed. I don't really mind those 
disappearing as such. Because when I listen back to myself for the first, whoa, I mean, at least 100, but probably more episodes of Getting Better Acquainted, the person that I hear is somebody that I rarely agree with, who is an incredibly different person to the person that I am now. I've got a different job. I've got a different sense of identity. I think different things about myself. I think very different things about the world. Other reasons for replaying early episodes of the show are that it gives me some space because I've got quite a lot on at the moment. So I haven't always got the amount of time needed to edit a standard episode of Getting Better Acquainted and I don't always have conversations in the conversation bank so I need to space out my episodes a little bit more with these replayed episodes. That also has another effect which I like a lot which is that Getting Better Acquainted isn't just about people who are in the arts or the media or that kind of thing. It's about everybody and these days my life means that the people I know, the people I meet, the new people that I invite on the show tend to have more of a profile than they used to have and that's good in some ways but that limits the kinds of voices that come out on the show so today's episode I'm really happy to share with you because it injects a different kind of voice into the show but it also injects a different kind of relationship into the show because conversations are all about relationships and I'm a different person when I speak to different people and that's one of the things that Getting Better Acquainted is all about. So this episode is from the first year of Getting Better Acquainted. The editing is a little bit dodgy from time to time but I'm sure that that is the case even for new episodes because one of the aspects to putting out a weekly show means that there's quite a quick turnaround and so it is harder to edit the episodes as cleanly as I do other work where I have a lot more time to listen back and to tweak and to tweak and to make things just right and perfect. That's not the spirit of getting better acquainted. This is a production line, if you like, where some of the quality is exchanged for a frequency and a reliability. I don't really say anything in this episode that I particularly object to or need to kind of comment on. The only real thing to be aware of is that my life back then was very different and I was working as an early years library outreach worker, singing songs and telling stories to children under five on behalf of the library service. And that was a big part of who I was, what I did and how I thought about the world. And you can hear that in this conversation. Wandering across your environment and engaging with those kind of strange things that you see when you're walking around. Like you might see a shadow of, a, of an advertisement on the side of a building that goes back to Victorian days. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. So today we're getting better acquainted with Iris. Hello, Iris. Hi. Hello, David. <laughs> and that's, uh, it's strange for me to say Iris and it's strange for me to hear David for different reasons because I don't think I've ever called you really by your first name. I don't think you did, no. And the name that you use for me, David, is something that I haven't been called for a very <laughs> long time. So that should give people an idea of yeah. how long it's been since we've last seen a each other. A long time. Um, the... First question I ask people is, how do you know me? I know you from when you were a schoolboy, 
when you were friendly with my boys and you used to come visiting my house because you didn't live very far away and we spent a lot of time together yeah and uh, you were always a very welcome member of our family you used to stop over quite a while I remember that you were a very good cook and oh, you, you used to make a delicious pasta dish and you used to, you used to get the herbs out of the I garden re- I re- remember doing that here because we tried delicious. we tried mint didn't we, we I did, think indeed, which I think yeah. worked it was interesting it really well yeah. yeah culinary memories that's really yeah. interesting that you have yeah. that memory because that's a really strong memory that I have that's but I just good. assumed that it wouldn't be very yeah. significant to you but that's interesting mm-hmm. that you remember it I do the other question mm-hmm. that I ask people just to start off is what mm-hmm. do you do now well my job is uh, academic support worker for students with disabilities at Coventry University but at present I'm on holiday because the students are all away and I wear another hat as well which is uh, to run a local history group for my area which is Willen Hall in Coventry and presently we're planning events for the autumn so um, that's what keeps me going through the summer very very interesting and when we started doing that, people said, don't be ridiculous, the area hasn't got any history. And then we uncovered a vast amount of stuff about our area. So we collected it all together. We published two books, one little and one big. We have a website which has got all our pictures on, which is about 10,000. So from saying that there's actually no history in the area, we've uncovered a vast amount. And have you been doing that for a few years? I've been doing that for about 11 years <laughs> Wow. Now. Yeah, so quite a seasoned historian and it's funny this setup because I'm sometimes in a similar setup sitting at the same kitchen table with people telling the story of the area so oh, well, uh, yes of but course my, my setup's not quite as sophisticated as yours well <laughs> no yeah I mean my, my, my setup's good I like it but yeah. uh, but some people would think it's not sophisticated it's all just different levels isn't it I suppose so so have you always lived in Coventry then no I haven't no I came to Coventry to get married my first contact in Coventry was about 1969 when I met my future in-laws because I met my husband at university in London and he's a Coventrian so we actually came to live and work here we actually bought our first house in 1972 okay so we've lived here ever since we used to live in stoke coventry and now we live in Ernsford grange so yeah which is where i used to live yeah that's right yeah because this is the same house that we're in now i know (laughs) kitchen's changed hasn't it just had the kitchen done up but no i mean in lots of ways it hasn't changed and it's been a really interesting experience to come back to this kind of a place revisiting your um your adolescence basically yeah well even pre-adolescence really because it was like 11 and 12 yeah. and then I came back here from For Cardiff to visit as well yeah and Stephen went to Cardiff as he well he did yeah. he did adventures indeed we did have some adventures it was some good times so you were originally from up from north are Lancashire, you? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I thought I recognised Oswald Twistle in Lancashire a little mill town so that's where I originated and oh, I right. was one of the, the first I mean I was I went to university in 1968 during the you know you might say that the upheavals yeah, uh, political upheavals, but there wasn't an awful lot of political upheaval going on at the time, really, at Coventry University. It all seemed to be happening <laughs> in Paris, but you know that was a good time to grow up. Yeah, I bet. And I met my husband then. We we've been together a long time now. I mean, we first met, we knew each other in 1968 as just boy and girl, and then we kind of got together in 1969. 
and the rest is history, you yeah, might say. So. Yeah. Were you the first in your family to go to university? I was, yeah. It was quite unusual at that time for a girl from Lancashire yeah. to go to university. I mean, I think it was only three out of ten young people went to university at that period, and they mostly went from, like, public schools. Yes, absolutely. But you were fully supported by the state. You had no money worries at all because everything was paid for. So basically, if you won the scholarship, you got the place at university. So, I mean, both of us went to university like that. Yeah. And we both went from Catholic schools, which is also unusual as well, in a way. There was a lot of opportunities for young folks in those days. You must have been driven, though, to like to a certain extent at school. You must have been a hard worker. I think I was hard working when it suited me. Because, <laughs> um, I mean, I, I did get good O-levels, but not maths. I couldn't pass that. But at that time, if you had Latin, you could go to university. Okay. So I was lucky, really, because otherwise I wouldn't have got there because there's no way I could ever have passed maths. I can do them now, but, you know, I was very resistant to anything I didn't like, but I worked really hard at things that I did like, right. which was languages, basically. Because so, um, that's what you did, I think, I when did. I knew you. Yeah, I was teaching French and German at the local community college and also at Tile Hill College as well. And do you have... You have is it... One of your parents is yeah, my Austrian, mom is Austrian. Yeah, yeah so there so, was the language interest. So that must have been, I guess, a, a, it you, was a did leg you, up. Did you speak yeah. two languages at home then, yeah. when you were a kid? Well, I mean, I learnt German from my mum from yeah. very small, and then there was all the visits to relatives as well to Austria, and Germany and Austria as well. What? Oh, so when you were when you were visiting Germany and Austria, when would that well, when would that have been? Well, we used to tired? go every year for two months from yeah. about nineteen fifty three. So that would have been... three onwards, till I was about 20. So it would have been when the war was still very much up and... I can remember being in Germany, in Würzburg, which was my auntie's home, because she married a German. That city was devastated in May 1945. It was a bit of a retaliatory raid, and it was an American raid. And they flattened what was basically a tourist town... And it wasn't an industrial town at all. And um, I can remember ruins because opposite where my auntie lived, if you looked out of the window of the flat, was a bomb site. My cousin said to me that under the cellar of that bomb site was shrunken bodies that had been taken out, you know, from a phosphorus bomb which had fallen and burned the people up. So they were just like little mummified, shriveled creatures. But I was just saying to my parents today that the hospitality and friendship that I encountered in Germany as an English girl was unbelievable. Mm. Whenever I went into a shop and spoke German and, you know, went on an errand, they used to give me something, <laughs> you oh, know, a little nice. bit of ornamental soap or, you know, a bread roll or something like that. They, yeah. they were just blown out by this English kid that could speak German. There's absolutely no ill feeling. and You know, like Germany to me just represents kindness and hospitality as far as I'm concerned that was what your experience that was my person I know other people have got other views but my experience was hospitality friends who are German and I Mm. go to Germany quite regularly actually and I mean I've I've always had a really lovely time there so I I always associate very Mm. nice things with Germany but what's what's interesting about Germany post-war was the smell of wet plaster and smoke because in the ruins you could still smell it wow and they'd actually the cathedral was actually bombed and during the period of time that I was visiting my auntie it was a bit like Coventry Cathedral it was then reconstructed yeah so you know what was ashes and ruins then grew up into a beautiful modern cathedral so there's a kind of analogy with Cov really you know and the growth of the cathedral yeah me and Steve were talking about that today when we Um, were walking around by the cathedrals and how you you're twinned with Dresden aren't you yeah we are you went to university Uh from 
a, a, a village in Lancashire. Yeah. And you were a woman and it was 1968. Yeah. Was it tough going to university or was it liberating? It was liberating. It was absolutely wonderful. <laughs> it was really good. And, you know, it was the period of time swinging London. We were there in, oh, God, the freedom, the miniskirts, you know, when everybody was young, you know. It was just great. I didn't work very hard either, I will confess, but I became a workaholic later in life to make up for it. But this was my time, I needed it. I needed to let my hair down a bit. Everybody's got to have some time like that. You have to. I mean, to be honest, I used to feel a bit guilty about that, but I don't now because I think that was blooming good. Yeah. It was really, and I still love London. I read every scrap that I can possibly find about London. All right. You know, like pe- people like Ian Sinclair that write about the psychogeography of London. And, oh, yeah, you know, yeah. So fascinating, and Will Self does it as well. Yeah, he does, yeah. And all the novels that are about London. I've got a big collection in the study. It's just amazing. That was such a good time in my life, that was. And did, where, whereabouts in London did you It live? was actually the, uh, the university is collegiate. So we were at Englefield Green, which is actually outside London, right. in Royal Holloway, which is yeah. now twinned with, I think it's, is it Regents? I can't remember now because it's a long time. It was just called Royal Holloway when we were there. And uh, the proportion of, of uh, women to men was quite large. It was really a girls' college to start with. Oh, right. So um, the, the men had a lot of choice. <laughs> That's a, yeah, an yeah. ideal position to be in, I nice guess, for, for the guys. Nice for guys, yeah. I had that experience because I, I, I studied <laughs> theatre at university, um, so there's hardly yeah. any blokes in theatre. Yeah. It's like occupational therapy at Coventry University. I think there's about three guys in the class and everybody <laughs> else is a girl, but that's how it goes, isn't Yeah, it? well, that's yeah. actually, that's been my, my mm. working life as well, working yeah. in libraries well, and with children, right, there's mostly, mostly women. women. Yeah. I mean, in our German department, I mean, think about it, university, 14 students in the class. And now, if you went into a German department, well, I don't know, you know, there'd probably be a lot more people in be. a class. Yeah, so, and, and actually the proportion of lads was, there were quite a few lads in our class. And I don't know what happened to them afterwards, I'd love to know, but I don't know, I didn't keep in touch with anybody, really. You didn't keep in contact with the people that you knew at uni? Not really, no, one or two, one or two, but there weren't the same opportunities like there are now, you know. The communication, It's so yeah. easy to keep up with That's things right. like Facebook and... You know, yeah, my dad says that. Yeah, there are things where you can actually rediscover. But what I discovered on my old school's reunion thing, that it was all the horrible girls that you didn't like anyway. <laughs> you know, the, the ones that were real teachers' pets and absolutely adored the nuns. They kept it up and I think us lot that were a little bit more rebellious fled as fast as we could away from school. So after university... Mm. You, you got married at, at the end of it, I did got you? married at the end of it and I became a mum pretty darn quick. And I brought up my son, Tony, who's now nearly 40. We're celebrating his 40th in a few weeks now. That was quite an acceptable thing to do in the 1970s, to be just a mum. Yeah. Yeah, it was nice. We didn't have very much money, but that didn't seem to matter very much at the time. There weren't so many things to buy as what there are now. No. No. It's almost gone the other way now as well. Like now, it's not a very acceptable thing to be a a mum. It isn't, no. And I think it's kind of gone probably too far the other way. There's a lot of young mums I know get made to feel guilty. Yeah, and they'd like to be just mum. Yeah, they'd like to stay I enjoy being just mum. Well, you know, for that period of time. I mean, I've got such nostalgia when... You know, you hear an old snatch of a television programme for small children and it takes me right back. Yeah. Um, that was enjoyable. Yeah, so I was a mum to Tony and then later on I became a mum to Stephen and Michael as well. There was quite a long gap. There was a gap, gap. Yeah. But when Michael was four, I thought, right, I've done my bit now. 
I'll do. I'll work part time, and I haven't actually ever worked full time. I've always worked part time or maximum thirty hours a week. That's a good number. So that gives me a good work life balance. Yeah. Yeah. Which but, is. Good. I mean, that's. I work thirty one hours a week now, and mm. it's the best I've ever had it. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Because you're not too tired, are you? No, mm. and you've got time to live as well as yeah. work. And I wish everyone had that opportunity. I know. Really. Well, originally when technology came in, you know, when Howard Wilson said we're living in the white heat of technology, the idea was that everybody would only work twenty hours a week. Yeah. Technology would liberate us, but. It didn't quite work out that now way. Now everybody's working long hours yeah. in front of a computer right, <laughs> because yeah. of the computer. And also, there's that element of the expertise that you take home with you. Quite often, you'll be logging on at night as well. Yeah. I mean, I know in the in the weeks when uni is really demanding, like just before exam time, I'm quite often doing quite a lot of hours that are actually unpaid because I need to help, say, a blind student to sort out some documents. So I'll do it at home. Yeah. And I don't actually mind doing that. Because it's interesting and it helps the person. Yeah. But I think I mean, there's a lot of that about Loads of it. Everybody I know in the public services are doing yeah. extra work. Because yeah. the thing about teaching or public services mm. is that you do it not just as a job. Mm. It's because you really believe in it. Yeah, or, and you can't, right. you, you know, if it's a, like you say, if it's a blind person mm. or if it's a group of children yeah. or whatever, mm. then you, you, you put in that extra work because right. you could let the kids yeah. down or the, or the blind person You don't down, want to you know? let anybody down, so you go the extra mile and yeah. you go to bed satisfied anyway. Right, a job done, you know, for the day. It's a nice feeling. So you were teaching languages. That's right, yeah. And then... Well, you, did you go? You went back to university. I did. Yeah, I decided. Right, I thought I would like to be a university lecturer. I'd always desired because I enjoyed lecturing at college. And then I thought, right, I, I actually told my boss at college that I was leaving, and she said, "Oh no, don't leave." But I said, "Well, you know, I, I need to do this." So um, I went back to university and I did communication, culture, and media, and I enjoyed that very much. I also did a bit of teaching at the local community college when needed in the evening just to, you know, fill in when people were on holiday. So I got this degree and then I thought, right, this was the year 2000. And then I thought, right, I'll do a master's. And I did a master's. I also did a bit of teaching at the technical college, which is the Butts, which is now City College, merged with the other colleges. And I enjoyed that. And actually, it was really enjoyable because one or two of the girls out of my class then went to Coventry University because they liked the idea of going on that course. Yeah. So that was good. But apart from being given the odd opportunity to lecture at the university, there wasn't any lecturing job forthcoming. So I thought, what shall I do? So I applied to be an academic support worker where I'd still be in uni every day and I'd still be absorbing the atmosphere yeah. and I'd still be able to go to lectures and, you know, the idea of helping people with disabilities. I've never, never actually had anything much to do with a person with disabilities before, but I soon realised that they, they were just like any other student, you know, they had their ups and their downs and sometimes they were a really good laugh, sometimes we had a hilarious time. So, you know, it doesn't feel like work sometimes. When I'm sitting in in a lecture in the midst of a group of raucous students with my student next to me, I just feel like another student. Yeah, <laughs> and it's really good. And I was very happy when my students all... They've all done really well. And the last student that had got a first-class degree. So, oh, that's good. Hooray. So we've gone from two ones to first-class. So I can't really follow that, can I? <laughs> 
dear. But no, that was. I mean, that was all credit to him. It was yeah, his course, hard work. Yeah. But, but I'm it was sure nice you had to something to do. Nice right? to be there in the background. Exactly. Yeah. I can't wait till till November when I watch him go up with his cap and his gown to get his degree. That would be lovely. Oh, that would be a nice feeling. Mm. Yeah, that's something. That's something great. Mm, especially, you know, you see them right through from when they were a little fresher with knocking knees or <laughs> trembling to when they're actually a sophisticated young man. I've seen, you know, I've seen that change. That must be amazing. Yeah. yeah. So you went back to university as, I guess, you'd be called a mature student. I was a very mature student. In <laughs> fact, the students, they didn't seem to mind. They yeah. didn't seem to mind at all, except the people that didn't know me, because I was walking through the Ellen Terry building one day where media was taught, and the girl noticed me, said, she's, she's too old to be at university, and I thought, I'll show you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but the group that, when I was at university, were absolutely brilliant that I was with, and I wasn't the only mature student. Oh, well, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. And that's a group that I have kept in touch with. Yeah. Those particular peers, you know, and that was really good. And you chose yeah. culture, what was it culture? It's communication, Commun- culture and media. That's right. And then he said culture, media and sport then. Yeah, of the no, I'm not sport, government the ministry. Ministry. So um, why did you choose? Because my son did it and oh, I thought this looks interesting. It's a mixture of sociology, psychology, film studies, quite serious depth and politics as well. Wow. And we always used to look at um, the way the media represented current events. And I laugh so much when people say Mickey Mouse media courses. When you think about this recent thing with um, the phone hacking, it's actually very, very important to study the media and see what's going on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, well, I think so anyway. No, you're, you're right. I, I actually interviewed my old lecturer from university mm-hmm. who now is... He's now teaching media mm. studies, and he, he said mm. the same thing. It's very important. I mean, we used to also look at the representation of war, because that's Coventry University's big research project, is looking at how wars are represented in the media from different angles. And, you know, you would look at a war report and you kind of analyse the, the phraseology that was used about the conflict, you know, what does that actually tell you about the reporter's stance and stuff like that, and... That was really interesting. And also photographic representations, because, I mean, they're chopped and cut. Like, for instance, when Saddam's um, statue was toppled in 2003, that was actually just a tiny fragment of, of people that were actually doing it. Yeah. yeah. And it's cropped in various ways. And, we, you know, we looked at all those issues, and it made us very critical. And did, did you did you reach any conclusions about the way that the media represents things when you were doing that course, or did it just make you much more like you challenge everything? Yeah, you? and it made me realise that media is a construct, and that when the newspapers say all the news that's fit to print, what they really mean is all the news that we actually want the people to know about. Because yeah. it made me ponder on how things slip off the radar as other things crop up, yeah. but they're still going on. And, you know, what the preoccupations of the media are and what it tells you about things like attitudes to women and um, things like immigration. You know, the language that's used around, for instance, in the Daily Mail, you realise the power of someone like Paul Dacre. It makes you think, well, Murdoch was powerful and pulled strings, but Paul Dacre from the Daily Mail pulls an awful lot of strings mm. from Middle England and people are actually frightened of these people, so... Yes, it does make sort of challenge what's and actually written. When the language comes through, it doesn't matter what where it what con- conduit of the media it comes through. When it 
it may start in the Daily Mail, but mm. after a certain point of saturation, everybody's using it. I've yeah. seen that with the word uh, chad. That's terrible, isn't it? Isn't yeah. it? I hate that word, oh, and but, but people can't not use it because it's become mm. a thing. It's, and it's so it's, yeah. it's the, it, the Guardian will use it as much as mm. the Daily Mail now. Yeah, and someone's just written a book about it. Oh, yeah, that's Jordan right. Jones has just written a book about it. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Again, me and Steve were talking about this earlier on, and, mm. and, and uh, I mean, it wasn't the same words in our day, but there mm. was always words to describe people yeah. from low socioeconomic yeah, backgrounds, I guess. That's right, yeah. It just changes. I mean, it's a very old word. Apparently, it's um, a Romany word. That's what and people it just means say, yeah. boy in Romany, but it's become to mean like a certain type of person within a socioeconomic yeah. group, not even the whole socioeconomic no. group. But there's an element of jealousy, I think, about some of the carefree nature of some of the people that are actually represented by that word, yeah. you know, so, yeah. No, absolutely. Mm. I mean, it's a very complicated uh, word. And, uh, yeah, I, I, I find it... I know people who... Mm. like my Well, I guess, you you know, if my... My little sister might have, at some points in her life, have been called it, but would have been called a chav by some people. Mm. But that doesn't mean that she's not you know, just the same as everybody mm. else. You know, she just chooses to dress in a different way and oh, listens to a certain kind of music. Should be everyone's choice the way they dress. Exactly. Personally, a bit of flamboyance and a bit of in-your-faceness is just part of the period of life that you're at, isn't it? Abs- yeah. I agree. I agree mm. very much. So you you did your did the, the degree, mm-hmm. and then you have become a academic support officer yeah? that's right and that sounds like a fantastic thing. I think I've known people who've done it before but I've never really kind of thought about the job in much depth before it's interesting mm. to, to hear that so you spent all the time with the person that you were kind of yes, looking out I've for I've tended to have because I tend to take the more complex cases I think it's because of my age and maturity I tend to I've got a very long fuse, you might say, so, and I don't get faced very quickly. So I had, first of all, I had a young lady who was deaf. She'd got a cochlear implant, and that was my very first student. And uh, she used the T-loop for lectures. You can switch your cochlear implant into that, and then you yeah. actually get input. And then um, I worked the rest of the time with the two young men with cerebral palsy. And then I finally took on a case where I just got the one young man with cerebral palsy and I had him till he graduated. He did very well. And he actually had very little movement. He was uh, quadriplegic and he'd also got um, athletoid movements, which means he was never still. It must have been so exhausting for him. And he couldn't speak either, so he used to use a spelling board and we spelt out the whole of his dissertation and all his le- essays literally I'll letter by letter and that really worked very well and we got so quick at it that people used to say are you too psychic (laughs) because we had shortcuts people didn't know about there were certain words that we could actually cut out you know all the ands and the thes and that and we got really good at it and we used to have a lot of jokes as well and uh, he he did very well he got a 2-1 his dissertation was very good and he went back to Sheffield and I was quite upset because he oh. was lovely. But we do still keep in touch, and I've been up to see him a couple of times. And then I work with Miracle, uh, this blind guy from Nigeria, and I work with him two and a half years till he okay. graduated. So he was my very last student. I don't know who I'll be having in September. September, so you're in a kind of moment oh, where it's oh, a big adventure. Slightly out of the comfort zone, because what happens is 
you get very apprehensive before you've met the person because you imagine somebody that you won't be able to cope with, you know, and then you, you get used to this person and you start to really like them and they start to sort of bond with you and uh, it all goes really smoothly and then you have to say bye-bye again. It's like, you know, a member of the family going, really. That's how it feels. Yeah. So, you know, the unknown is quite scary, so I'm sort of a bit apprehensive like this. But yeah. I'll get used to it. I can it. understand that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I feel that way when I get... Because I... I mean, it's not as extreme a difference, probably, but I, I get... You know, the at the end of the year, the mm. kids in my, my groups that I work with, because I work with children, they go off to school. Mm-hmm. And then I get new children. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. new babies and stuff. And yeah. it's the same kind of thing where you're mm-hmm. like, I liked all of those kids. They've all gone. Yeah. I'm really sad that they've gone. And mm-hmm. the new ones, will I like them... But, I mean, yeah. I'm very lucky working with children under five. I've never met a child that I haven't thought was lovely oh, because they're that yeah. young, but they're not yeah. old enough to be unlovely yet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Do you yeah, see what I mean? Are. Yeah, they're lovely at that age. They are. They? There's always something about them. So touching. Because yeah. they're so innocent. They still yeah. trust. And they're still, even yeah. if they're, even if there's behavioural difficulties, mm. they're still, they're still trusting. Yeah. It's a different kettle of fish, though, when you're working with adults, mm. I would imagine, more complicated issues to deal with yeah I mean there are I mean we we feel as though we also are mentors as well for our students you know I mean sometimes there are problems if we can't cope with them ourselves obviously we refer them on to counselling service or the chaplain have got various chaplaincies at the university but if it's something that we can help with we we do I mean we're supposed to have the support of our line manager but often she doesn't even need to kick in you know, because it's often just a case of someone needs someone to listen to mm. them. And basically what I find is people actually just want you to listen and they clarify their own thoughts anyway as yeah. what to do while they're actually telling you. And yeah. then they say, oh, I think, oh, thank you very much for your help and you haven't actually done anything. All you've done is sit there and listen. So, you know, we are a listening ear for our students as well as um, taking notes and going to the library and all that academic stuff that we do. Do you know what subject they'll be studying? No, so you... I haven't a clue. I have done every subject under the sun, wow. including computer science. <laughs> With that student, I had him for two terms. Because I've been there 11 years nearly, so I've had quite a few yeah, students bet, come through yeah. in the time. But this young man had elective mutism. Or some people would say elective, but we thought it might be selective because he would talk to me in my ear. Okay. So it, it was like he would speak to some people and not others. And he all he needed in computer science was someone to sit with him for reassurance next to him and just kind of email him with uh, friendly suggestions. In fact, he said to me, why, you know, by email, he said, you ought to write a manual on this. Because I used to, because he, he was very comfortable with email. Yeah. In fact, um, he was a bit of a whiz kid in various ways, electronically. So I used to email him with suggestions on how to cope with different situations. That was the most bizarre situation I've ever been in. Oh, it sounds like you found it a, a, a good found, way of dealing yeah, with it. And also through, eventually I got through through the email and his mum was CC'd onto a lot of stuff. I got his mum on side as well. And uh, he decided eventually that he would leave with a diploma, HND, rather than carry on and do a degree because he realised it was a bridge too far. So he left happily with with the qualification. It's a, it's a terrific job. It sounds like actually maybe I mean, it sounds like something I'd be interested I in doing myself. I think you'd be very actually. good at it, David. Seriously, 
because I think you've got the empathy and you've also already had experience relating to small children, you know, directly. So, you know, to transfer those skills would be quite easy. Yeah, it sounds interesting, definitely. Something to store up and consider for the future. You do a a local history group and you've been doing that 11 years too. That will probably be ongoing until we... I don't think we'll ever exhaust the possibilities because um, the thing is education services has us involved delivering part of the national curriculum. Okay. So last year it was year fives and they were doing poor law and Victorian children experience of, of life so we actually took an exhibition into school on several occasions based on Coventry based on Victorian um, Coventry. the actual land usage in the area oh, of wow. Willen, it's, uh, well it's Binley Willen Hall you know our area yeah. it's bisected by the railway but it's actually an artificial boundary really yeah that's right because okay. this was all the farmland that belonged to Coombe Coombe Country Park, which I went to as a kid. And the whole of this area was actually owned by um, the various incumbents of Coombe, and they sold it off in 1926 in parcels of land which people bought. Some speculated builders then built this estate. So that's the history of how the area became like this. And because there was such a housing shortage in post-war Coventry, that estate of Hall was actually built in two phases starting in the 1950s. First lot of people moved in in 1953, second lot of people moved in 1958. But then we discovered another story, because if you walk around Willendor, if you go around the precinct, you see there's a lot of elderly people of different ethnicities that you wouldn't expect to see in Willendor. And the fact was, there was a resettlement camp there. What happened was, everybody that had been interned in Changi, in Singapore, when the Japanese were defeated, okay. were liberated, and uh, they were actually brought to England on various ships. And first of all, they landed at Liverpool, and then they were decanted to various parts of the UK. And a great amount of people from Southeast Asia ended up here, wow. in the camps in Willenhall. And a lot of them fell in love with someone at the dances that were held at the hostel and they've stayed. Oh, nice. So, you know, they're like second, third generation now of people who can tell a story, you know, a really interesting story about how they were interned in Changi and how they never want to see another grain of rice again because that's all they got to eat. <laughs> so, you know, Willenhall was a place of sanctuary for people. And that, that bit of history wasn't really very well known. So we actually unearthed it with the help of local residents who actually brought us their albums so that we could actually scan the pictures. And then other people come from other parts of the world as well. For instance, in Iraq, there was a, a regime change and lots of British people got chucked out and they came here as well. So that was really interesting. That's something I never knew till I started doing that history group. Wow. And you, and so you, and you do interviews with people uh, yeah, much like this? Yeah, using my Sony tape recorder. <laughs> we transcribed them literally by hand. We're not into vials, wave files or anything like that, but um, <laughs> what we do is we, um, we transcribe, we publish a small book first and then we published a larger one with all different anecdotes and stories, yeah. you know, they selected the best bits out, but um, that, that will, all, all our archive will go to the Herbert in the end. Are you one of a team or are you... We're a team, yeah. It varies in membership. Unfortunately, we recently lost our chairman who sadly died, but another chairman has taken over now. We carry on with the work, you know, because we don't want to stop doing it. We get um, grants from Whitefriars Pride in our street to do events. Uh, We decided to reclaim St George's Day from the um, rather extreme right wing and we had a 
fabulous St. George's Day, multicultural St. George's Day, and it was the the Lord Mayor came and his wife and sang along, and uh, the local MP came, and we had various stalls and events, inside and outside, fabulous hot day, hundreds of people, so uh, Whitefriars Pride in our street, we're so glad that they've given us another grant to do it next year. Because oh, we lovely. helped to put Willen Hall on the map in a positive manner. So obviously, you know, like documentation, we have to photograph it all. Yeah. And um, that's evidence. And then we just do an end of grant form to say we spent all the money correctly. So we're dealing with quite large sums for us, really. But yeah, it's and It sounds like you're doing good. good things with them. Yeah. I mean, how did you come to be a, be a local historian? I got chosen. I went to a, a meeting in the local library and they pointed at me and they said, you're the treasurer. I said, no, I can't add up. She can. She could, that was my friend. Yeah. She can be the treasurer. I'll be the secretary. And my friend was quite happy to be the treasurer because she loves the column of figures. The group had been formed earlier on, but for some reason the people had all fallen out with each other. This does happen in groups. Yeah, but of course, ours yeah. is very harmonious, actually, because we tend to count to ten before we say anything <laughs> drastic. We've got on really well. So basically there was a meeting called and the head of the library service, who's now retired, he was actually chairing the meeting and he just said, you, you and you basically, you're the chairman, you're the secretary, you're the treasurer. Oh wow. And we've built it up from there. Small, we started really small. Yeah. We got very, very big and ambitious, but that was because we were driven a lot by our late chairman but we've decided to contract a little bit because yeah. we haven't got the dynamism or the time that this person had but we will function still and the school wants us to come back and this time they want the elderly members of our group to talk about their experiences of second world war for year six oh, cool. so actually that's getting quite challenging now because year six children quite sophisticated they are, aren't yes, they absolutely. so we'll have to make it really good it's great to do history with first-hand sources Mm. directly with children I mean that's fantastic I mean one of the things I've been really glad to be able to do as part of this project was to get my dad's war story down he's a first hand resource Mm. Uh, a first person or whatever what's it called is it is it is it first hand am I using the right term first primary he's a primary he's a primary source that's that's what he is yeah Uh, and it's great to have that in your in your actual family it's interesting as well that you're doing a local history group in Coventry but you're not from Coventry originally you're from Lancashire I find it fascinating I mean I'm I'm absolutely struck on Coventry not just my own area I'm a mad bus rider and I like to ride to outlying areas and just walk around look at the things like the street names and then go back and discover more about the actual area, like, for instance, Holbrooks or um, the bit by Rowley's Green. You know, things, areas of Coventry that I don't know very well. It's like going wandering in, in strange territory. You know, I'm hooked on that psychogeography idea of Ian Sinclair. And the, the only journal article I ever had published when I was at university, I actually had one article published, and that was a, a kind of psychogeographical article about the place where I lived in Oswald Twistle, how the changes had come about in that area because of because of immigration, how it had actually affected the landscape of the area. There was a lot of different kinds of immigration. First of all, a lot of Polish people stayed because they couldn't go back after the war. And then there was an influx of people from Kashmir to come and work in the last gasp of the cotton industry. And they changed the, the eating habits, the shops, the yeah, actual landscape. Absolutely. You know, that's so I was interested in that. It all started off, I read an academic article 
and it said that white blonde women had never actually experienced anything like otherness or difference and I got so furious I actually wrote this article and my tutor was really glad that I'd actually got fired up and he was trying to encourage me to do more stuff but I never did after that but I thought yes white women also can experience different ethnicities because you know you you don't look beyond the blue-eyed white blonde woman to see that she's actually come from somewhere else the, yeah. uh, and that communities are, are formed of lots of different mm, influences that's right, and different that you would have been influenced by that. Yeah, yeah. could you define psychogeography for people who might not have oh, heard the yeah, term? Well, psychogeography is actually the, the act of wandering across your environment and engaging with those kind of strange things that you see when you're walking around like you might see a shadow of, a, of an advertisement on the side of a building that goes back to Victorian days and all those disjunctures that you see when you're walking around and those strange forgotten areas that actually might take you back to the Industrial Revolution they've never changed and how there's so much discontinuity in the landscape and it starts to make you feel a, bit, a little bit unsettled Yeah, and you start to think there's more to this street just this boring street in Coventry than meets the eye and you start looking almost like the skin beneath, you know, you start looking beneath the surface. It actually came from a, a movement, I think it was somebody called Guy Debord, who used to just wander around. He used to arrange kind of happenings where you just wandered around, and it's kind of developed from there. And I think Ian Sinclair's probably our best yeah, um, psychogeographer. I mean, he, he has made films and written books about places like the M25, which you think it's just a boring motorway, but when you actually look into all the things that are by the side of the N25, it starts to become really fascinating. So I'm sort of trying to psychogeographise my... <laughs> there's no word for it, is that look at, look at Coventry in the same way. Well, I guess it's quite an interesting area from that point of view as well, isn't it? Because it has this... Me and Steve, again, were talking about this earlier on, that it has this strong point where a lot of it, it was a third of the city was destroyed in the Blitz. That's yeah. what the video in the New in Cathedral the, said yeah. today. Uh-huh. And and so it's had this extreme moment where yeah. everything's changed, but then mm. what didn't change was steeped in lots of history, wasn't it? Absolutely. I mean, that's yeah. a, so I guess it's a very interesting place to look it at. It is. I mean, I find it fascinating. I just wander around all the time. Sometimes I, I wander around the old cathedral and I go into where the side chapels were. And if yeah. you really concentrate, this is almost like psychogeography, you can actually see the remains of the columns there. You know how how old marble marble chapels with, with columns and statues and you can actually see the burnt remains of those. And if you really use your imagination, you could almost think, it comes to life again, you know, this wow. side chapel, you can imagine what it must have been like. That's how ruins are anyway. Yeah. When I was a kid, we, we went to a lot of old castles, ruins mm. of castles, yeah. with my, my family, and mm. that's what I always used to love about them, that you could sort of, if you looked at them for a long time, mm. suddenly there'd be a castle there, yeah. and it wouldn't be ruins anymore. Yeah. yeah, it was brilliant. It kind of, it really, you know, if, if you, it brings a place to life, and I think, you know, with our history group, what we decided to do was mark these... I mean, I walked the territory and I thought, what shall we mark? We, we applied for a grant to put plaques up around the area and we'd actually researched what was there before. And we put... Like, for instance, there used to be a brickworks in our area because every small village had a brickworks. So we found out the site of the brickworks and we put a plaque on. We got the school children 
It was a big grant, I think it was more than £3,000 in 2002. We got the local school children to actually design the plaque, Arts Exchange of a Foundry, to actually cast the plaques in really beautiful kind of dark metal. And then one of our members is the builder and he screwed them up. So we had one on the railings of what used to be the brickworks, which nobody knew was there was one there. And then we discovered in 1183 there was an old chapel, the Chapel of St James. And we looked at the map and we superimposed the new map of the estate onto the old map and we discovered they'd actually called the close Oratory Close. Oh. So obviously that was the site of the chapel. So we put the plaque up on the fence there and then the woman who lived in the house next door she said I'm all spooked now because I live next door to a graveyard and we said no there never was a graveyard there so that had kind of created almost a little bit of history of its own and then we put a plaque on the railway you know where the railway arches go through because the railway was opened in 1838 by George Stevenson's son Robert I'm always impressed by the way that that historians can do these dates and names I'm so bad at that they're impressed on our minds so we went all around the the estate basically we put eight plaques up all together and they're still there nobody has vandalised them because people actually really respect them and then we, we made a history trail leaflet, so people have walked the trail a few yeah. times. And um, last year we had a brilliant walk where we invited the Coventry Society, who were actually quite, you know, oh, Willen Hall, but they were absolutely blown out when they came. They said it's so beautiful. That's they right. just could not believe how beautiful it was. When I lived here, Willenall was an estate that I was a bit nervous to go in, really. Mm. You work in Willenall and you, mm. you, you've... Been, you're doing history there. Yeah. yeah, it's just amazing the response that we've had as well from people. The main draw is the events that we put on with the funding, but to get people through the doors of the Haggard Centre, which, I mean, that was actually run down and closed. It's nothing to do with us that it's reopened, mm. but we now sit on the board of the limited company that run it on the subcommittee, mm. so it gets our foot in the door, at, you know, at quite a big organisation, and they listen to us as well, so... Well, it's that, I mean, that's terrific. I mean, it's. I think it's nice. People like to know what's the history of where yeah. they're at. I mean, mm-hmm. I think that's... It's, it, it must be nice for kids to sort of imagine, oh, you know... They love it. Exactly, yeah. these School things. kids love the idea of the... You know, they say, well, oh, that's a spooky spot where the... Because yeah. no, nothing has ever been built on the spot where the chapel was, but it's only because four drains cross and you can't build on it. But <laughs> it's actually still there, the green space. So you start to use your imagination about, oh. And there was another thing, there was a lot of rubble during the Victorian period that, I mean, the, 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 basically the chapel fell, fell to the ground and it, some, some of it was built into walls and stuff mm. like that, but some of it was just left. And in the Victorian period, somebody um, salvaged the head of St. James and that was kept in a cupboard in the, in the local school and it vanished. And we've had a campaign for 10 years to get it back. Well, it's just come back. So it will be on display when we have our next event. Where so, was it? It was in, it's still in the school. Somebody had shoved it in a cupboard somewhere. So it's a sandstone head of St. James, looking actually very mournful and very worn. But there you go. <laughs> I was quite chuffed about that. That's great, yeah, getting that yeah. back. In a way, it's had a kind of 
number of years in a in a sort of safe space for a bit, and yeah. then it can come back out and display. Because right. I mean, I, away eventually. Another thing I was sort of interested to talk to you about was what I was like when I was a boy, I guess, and what it was like having oh. me around here all the time. Actually, you were, you were like the fourth boy. <laughs> you fitted in very well. I, I, I liked your domesticity. I think that's the thing I remember the most. And you were a very serious boy. You took things seriously. Yeah, I still and do. You're very I think. creative. You were interested in, well, the same things that we like here, actually. That's how come I think you fitted in well, because you like books and poetry, and you weren't ashamed of being artistic, were you? No, no. You were up front with... Not then. (laughs) No, no, it was... uh, I remember you being a lot blonder than what you are now. That's true. With a a nice shock of hair like that. And did, I mean, I guess, see, the the thing that I've sort of wondered about is... I mean, I spend, I mean, I was here, like, what, five days, five nights a week, probably, mm. most, most weeks. I mean, and I'm an adult now, and so I'm aware that you're not just a a, 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 lov- a lovely mother figure, but you're an adult with a whole mm. kind of other... Yeah, backstory. Yeah, well, not just a backstory, <laughs> yeah. but also, you know, opinions that you mm. might have that you wouldn't necessarily volunteer to a child. Mm. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, I was wondering, because, I mean... Did you sense, what did you sort of sense my life was outside of this house? I think it was probably quite complex, wasn't it? Yeah, Um, I think so. I didn't really know much about your situation. I sort of took you at face value. Yeah. Yeah. You were always, um, well, you fitted, I mean, you sometimes slept over, didn't you? I did, You know, you kind of just fitted in. I mean, it wasn't like an obtrusive presence Well, that's, at all. that's good to hear, because really we did spend a lot of time here, so I'm really, glad I wasn't... I mean, I always felt comfortable around you, you when you were here. You once told me that we didn't eat enough. <laughs> that <laughs> did, made me laugh. Did I? <laughs> I don't think I'd cooked enough potatoes. Oh, dear. <laughs> That's very... That's a joke. Very forward I think you were me. just pulling my leg. I probably was. I don't think you were afraid to, to communicate either. You weren't shy, were you? No, the, I wasn't. I think the thing that came across strongest as, of your families was your deep love for your father, mm, which nice. was lovely. I mean, you know, you really did respect your dad. Yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, it was a sort of... It was a very tough time, family-wise, at mm. that time, my family life. I mean, I guess, like, one one of my kind of places that I went that was a safe place was my dad's mm. house. Brown and Jasmine. Yeah, that's yeah. right. We, we mm. went there today and mm-hmm. it, it no longer exists. There's new houses built there. Oh, really? Yeah. I have not been that way for no, a long time. No, new houses been built. Really? So they've taken, and the, the pub's gone and the, the building he was in, the, mm. the, the uh, flats that he was mm. in. But, I mean, I guess here was one of the other places, like Oasis is mm. of kind of happiness kind of thing. Mm. I would come here and hang out here and it was nice family environment which didn't have complications mm, it's just really you know just I mean I wouldn't I wouldn't say that my life is, is totally free of complications but I think we kind of hid them from the children if you know what I mean well absolutely yeah my family don't do much mm. hiding from the children mm. that's a there's some good things about that and there's some it's bad things good about and bad, that. Yeah. I mean, yeah. my kids suss things out anyway you know but if I think about you I think about creative young boy very polite, always brilliant man's very well spoken, much more well spoken than my two at the time because they were going through more of a oh, boys phase, weren't they? Yeah. Yeah, and you were always very well spoken. 
And your mum was a very professional lady, wasn't she? She because was a very she professional was working lady for the Usher's, um, the Usher's Syndrome Society. And she, then she got the big post, didn't right. she? And you went to Wales. Yeah, that's right, we went to Cardiff, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I remember Rosie. Was well, a, she sister. was a very little girl, wasn't she? She was, at the time. At the time. Yeah. Long yeah. blonde hair. Yeah. No, that's no, it's interesting to know, because I, I didn't know how much of my... Like, because my dad, I didn't communicate very much to my dad, so I was mm. interested to know how much I communicated to you guys here. And mm. it sounds like I was uh, consistently quite good at hiding what was going on at my house, which is strange because I'm a very open person, mm. as, you, as you sort of have alluded to. It's, I think people will find it quite funny who know me now that I was was polite and well spoken when I was a kid. <laughs> but you were. Well, yeah, when I was yeah. a kid, probably. I'm known mm. to my, my friends father I went to my friend's wedding recently mm. and his father knows me as uh, that Dave who has a strong love for Anglo-Saxon meaning <laughs> I, I swear a lot do you know I can't imagine you swearing because you never you never I mean my lot used to swear like troopers to be honest <laughs> they've stopped doing it now but I mean every second word was, I think there's nothing that yeah. but they grew out of that I think when 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 me and Steve sit, sit up until two in the morning we yeah. can we can swear again but yeah. I, but, but yeah I know what you mean <laughs> you never swore but I mean I never minded people swearing that much it's funny though because I mean I didn't swear then but I it's, I, I do swear a lot now but I'm, I've always been quite good at actually no I think I was better at it when I was younger but I, I think I've always been quite good at fitting the different social mm. so like yeah. you know my job now I don't swear to find no, oh no, you know that's what I mean yeah. um, so I mean I was I've always been aware of I've always been quite polite to people's parents, I think. I think you fitted in very well. I don't <laughs> think my husband had any objections to you being here either. I think we enjoyed it. Well, you, you, didn't, you didn't think we were crazy either, because a lot of the school friends thought we were loopy. Did to they? To be honest, yeah, I think so. I sort of got the impression from some young people that came around to our house that they thought we were crazy, well, because we were quite laid back about we couldn't care less what they ate. You know, yeah. Who cares? Because the thing is, I'd had a child before, yeah. Tony, and I knew that they'd grow out of it anyway. There's a period of time when people often focus on one food stuff, but yeah. every adult eats everything unless there's something wrong with them, don't yeah, they? Yeah, that's true. I mean, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I really enjoyed potato waffles and mini, and mini pizzas. <laughs> pizzas and waffles, everywhere. I loved it. I loved but then it. you made your pasta dish, and I, I remember we, we all had Sunday lunch, I think, didn't we, sometimes? That's yeah. right. There, there was, I mean, there yeah. was, yeah, there was a lot yeah. of... And I, I spent a lot of time in this house. And then when you were older, I mean, you showed us your book of poems, didn't you? <sighs> I mean, you weren't shy. Were you to no, be no, no. I've always been very mm. forward about these things. Yeah, I think you, you fitted in quite well because I remember a little girl used to come and, and visit us, and uh, she always used to say, "You're you're all crazy." Well, I think every family's crazy. <laughs> I, I mean, my, my family's much crazier than yours. So, I mean, maybe, I mean, that's a. Yes, I think we're all more laid back about these things now, anyway. Yeah. Vive la différence. Eh? That's 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 true. Actually, yeah. that's been a that's been a, yeah. a cultural change. I think there was um, a more conventional. I mean, like in the eighties, I think there was a more conventional attitude. Which has now sort of been blown away. I mean, there's so many different ways of living your life now, yeah. aren't there? I mean, there are different ways of having relationships. There are different yeah. configurations of relationships yeah, now, aren't definitely. there? Like, I mean, I've, I know friends who've got civil partnerships, and Indeed, I mean, yeah, you know, they too. would never have been able to in the past, would they? No. You know, legitimise their relationship like that. But it's got a lot better for individuals, I think. And yeah, also for things true. like mixed race relationships as well, much more acceptable now. Yeah, definitely. Aren't they? That's definitely. So true. I think you know, and we've come a long way down the road in personal relationships. Yeah. 
I think, you know, it's a lot easier. Well, and I think everybody's everybody's got complicated family backgrounds as well. The, the, mm. the more you talk to yeah, adults, the more you right, realise yeah. that everybody's yeah, well, family's complicated yeah. and, 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 yeah. and also probably very rewarding, or maybe not, you mm. know, it depends on your... Yeah. But I mean, I, I've I've at least found my family to be rewarding, if, yeah, think, as, as well know, as complicated. What you all did was make the very best of what was handed to you, didn't you? I think. Yeah. I think so. I mean, for you to have turned out the way you did is a credit to your parents. That's isn't nice it? of yeah, you to is. say. Isn't yeah, that is nice absolutely. of you to say? I don't know where I'm gonna. You never know how you're gonna turn out in the end. You know, the no. one thing you learn is that you're a work in progress, not just yeah. till you're eighteen. Mm, <laughs> it keeps going. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, I'm what sixty one now, and I'm still at it. You know, yeah. working on myself. Absolutely. Yeah. Do you have any embarrassing stories? I don't know. I don't. I don't yeah. actually. Apart from the time you said we didn't eat enough, That's that was probably because you were hungry. Yeah. Yeah, because you had a very good appetite. Did I? I mean, I've got no embarrassing. That's that's re- relieving. <laughs> the last question I ask people mm. is: Do you have anything that you want to plug or promote? Don't keep hankering about going a long way away to find things out. Look on your doorstep because often it, the answer is there. And look at your own environment and uh, learn from it and sort of put your roots down where you are. That's, that's what I would say to people. Wow, that's <laughs> great. I think that's brilliant. Fantastic, that's, 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 that's amazing. And, I mean, I guess you've also got a local history site, have you? Or is it you... We've got books. Um, we have um, a website www.virtualmuseumwillandhall.co.uk. So you can see all of the, some of the pictures yeah. and, and all the, the ten thousand pictures. <laughs> yeah, that you've yeah. been talking about. That's yeah. great. That too. website probably will only be maintained for another year. Okay. Because the expense, but we're going to archive it after that. There's a way that you can archive a snapshot of your website. That's right. It's a history group for posterity. Oh, fantastic. Because they're getting more and more and more expensive to ruin the hosting and the domain name of getting really expensive. Yeah, they're archiving the internet aren't they, mm. as much as possible. So if we archive it, then that will, that will save it forever. Well, that's fantastic. It's been a, a real pleasure getting better acquainted with you. It's been uh, as it's, an adult, yeah. It's so interesting, yeah. Exactly that. Yeah. Exactly that. As an adult. Mm. And the last thing I say to people is, would you like to say goodbye to the audience? Goodbye. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs>for things that I do at you so if you're interested in hearing about masculinity and 
what patriarchy does to men and to all people, then you might be interested in my solo show, What About the Men? Mansplaining Masculinity, which you can listen to for free as a podcast. And you can also read the survey of a thousand men's opinions about patriarchy and masculinity that I put together. You can find all of that stuff over on mansplainingmasculinity.co.uk or you can look for Stand Up Tragedy on iTunes and listen to the most recent podcast, which is a full version of that show. If you're interested in reading about me and my dad and our relationship and dementia and memory and time and history and politics and love and friendship and again a little bit about masculinity then check out my essay series down to a sunless sea memories of my dad do please check out the family tree season two is going to some really interesting places and we've worked out a plot for season three which again is going to take it to some amazing places so please do check out the show at thefamilytreepodcast.co.uk but also consider becoming a patron and contributing to our patreon campaign and helping us to make the show because it does cost money to make the show it certainly costs a lot of time to make the show and we could really do with your support and even if you don't listen to the family tree consider becoming a patron to the family tree because if you listen to getting better acquainted and you like what i do with this show then A way that you can give something back to me for all of the free content that I've given to you over the years is to support the family tree and help that show to grow. And finally, Getting Better Acquainted can be found anywhere that podcasts go to hang out with each other on the internet. It's on Twitter at GBA Podcast. The show's Facebook page is just Getting Better Acquainted. And if you want to email me about the show, you can do that at gbapodcast at gmail.co.uk. If you want to talk to me directly about things that I talk about on the show or about any of my other projects, you can find me on Twitter at Goosefat101. And now it's time to say goodbye. So goodbye, everybody. And remember, there are lots of ways to get better acquainted.